Welcome to the Relatively Damaged Podcast by Damaged Parents, where crushed, breathless, scarred people come to learn maybe, just maybe, we're all a little bit damaged. Someone once told me it's safe to assume 50% of the people I meet are struggling and feel wounded in some way. I would venture to say it's closer to 100%. Every one of us is either currently struggling or has struggled with something that made us feel less than. Like we aren't good enough. We aren't capable. We are relatively damaged. And that's what we're here to talk about. In my ongoing investigation of the damaged self, I want to better understand how others view their own challenges. Maybe it's not so much about the damage. Maybe it's about our perception and how we deal with it. There is a deep commitment to becoming who we are meant to be. How do you do that? How do you find balance after a damaging experience? My hero is the damaged person. The one who faces seemingly insurmountable odds to come out on the other side whole. Those who stare directly into the face of adversity with unyielding persistence to discover their purpose. These are the people who inspire me to be more fully me. Not in spite of my trials, but because of them. Let's hear from another hero. Today's topic includes sensitive material which may not be appropriate for children. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as advice. The opinions expressed here were strictly those of the person who gave them. Today we're going to talk with Scott Swarner. He has many roles in his life. Son, husband, climber, businessman, and more. We'll talk about how he was told at 13 and 16 that death was imminent, what emotions were like during his recovery from cancer, and how he found the strength to climb Mount Everest with one lung. Let's talk. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Well, Sean, welcome to Relatively Damaged. I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. So you have an amazing story of struggle and hope that started when you were really, really young. Not a baby, but you know, teen years, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. I, I think that's kind of when my life started. You know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, my parents got together nine months later. Right? That's not really where my life started. My life started when I really started paying more attention to everything that was happening. And that's when I was, uh, I was diagnosed with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma as a 13-year-old. And I think that's, that's when, you know, my life was going on, on one path and then it just changed to a, a completely different direction. I was a normal, I guess, if there is a, if there is a normal for a teenager, but I was a normal teenager and uh, having a great time with my life until, you know, all of a sudden this big hurdle decided to throw itself into my way. What were those feelings like at that age? Yeah, I honestly, I I think at 13, it was a little different because, and I, I say different because it was, I also had another cancer at 16. And when I was older, I understood what was going on. The first one because I was so young, I didn't really understand what death meant. And I don't, I don't think anybody really has 
a concept of that when they're just 12, 13 years old. And I think that played into my survival, me being alive, because I was malleable. I, I didn't really understand what I was dealing with. The doctors diagnosed me with advanced stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they told my parents I had three months to live. So I think it hit me more on the aspect of not being able to be with my friends, not doing what at, at that point I thought was important. But on that journey, there, there was a moment when I was actually 60 pounds overweight and I was bald from head to toe in the bottom. I was, I was on the shower floor on my hands and knees weeping. And this is um, when you were 13. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And I was, I was pulling chunks of hair out of the drain, crying my eyes out. And I, I think it was because I, I knew I was different. You know, I, I definitely stood out like a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. and eighth grade freshman year in high school it's, it's a popularity contest and I, I wasn't popular because like I said I was massively overweight I, I had no hair on my entire body so I, I think it was it was definitely an emotional struggle there were some sometimes when I felt helpless hopeless but I, I just put kept putting one foot in front of the other and focused on what mattered most to me which wasn't the latest hairstyles the nice clothes it was literally fighting for my life Mm-hmm. And did your friends and schoolmates, if you will, did they know that you were going through this and what you were struggling with? It, they did, actually. I, I grew up in a really small town in, in Ohio called Willard, Ohio. And I think we had 5,000 people, maybe maybe four stoplights and a bunch of stop signs. So <laughs> everybody knew our business. You know, Everybody knew, knew everyone else's business. So the, the, the teachers, I think at, at, that, at that time, the teachers explain to the students why Sean looked the way he did. And, you know, they, they really helped with that. I think education went a long way. So I, I wasn't bullied. I was very fortunate I wasn't bullied because I think the bullies knew I was going through enough as it, as it was. Mm. But I think that educational aspect of, hey, this is why Sean looks this way. Mm-hmm. And it just, I, I think it was, it was also very helpful living in a, a small town. So I had that support system for sure. Yeah, that sounds actually really amazing. We can't say what's going through these other kids' minds, you know, and like you're saying, hopefully I wasn't bullied because they were educated. But did you guys, did your family talk a lot about the feelings that are going on during the struggle of cancer at that first one? Like, were you able to express, I'm scared, I'm sad, I'm, what did maybe some of those conversations look like? I I think because I saw my mom and my dad emotional, I felt like I had to grow up really quickly. Okay. And I, I actually, I, I wrote a book. I've, I've written a few books, but the first one I wrote, I actually transcribed my mom's journal mm-hmm. that she wrote when I was going through it. And that was probably one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life. And in there, she said something like, Sean, he, he's, he looks so strong. I've never seen him cry or something like that. You know, and she wrote, I, I, I cry every night. And I think I, I did that because I wanted to be that pillar of strength to help support my parents. Because I think in my mind, I knew I was going to survive. But I, I didn't, I, I couldn't handle and I, I didn't like seeing my parents going through what they were going through because of me. So did you maybe think part of that was your fault and that you needed to fix it? I, I, I think at, at some point I did. But later on, you know, as, as I got better and as, as we, we slowly talked about it and, go, and going back to your question too, we, we really didn't talk about it much. It was just kind of like, okay, this is, this is a pause in our life and we're going to do everything we can to get through this. Let's go. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that might be one of the reasons why I'm alive. But later in my life, I, I look back at it, and that's when I dealt with a lot of the, the trauma, because you know, mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult going through that. And, and a lot of people who went through cancer who had difficult treatments, I mean, there are a lot of have PTSD. Mm-hmm. You know, it might sound weird because everybody always associates associates that with the military or something else, but it it happens. And I I, I looked at that and realized, well, it it happened to me. Like I'll. I'll go into a hospital because everywhere I go, I try to share my survivorship story with the patients and I'll, I'll smell saline and it'll bring back a memory. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, I, I got to get out of here because it brought back all these emotions. And what's but that I, I think, feeling like when you're, when you smell the saline, what's that feeling? How do you know it's PTSD? Well, I, I think it's because I'll remember something. So in my second cancer, I actually was in a medically induced coma for a year. And what's weird is I'll smell something that'll bring back a memory from when I was laying in the hospital, mm-hmm. like of, of my mom and my dad sitting in the, the, the corner of the hospital room in the, the, the lazy boy chair. And all of a sudden I, I can remember them crying or I'll remember taking this little character, this, this stuffed animal is about this big that had two eyes and a mouth that was lights, like almost like LED lights. Mm-hmm. And whenever there was noise, he would beep. Mm-hmm. And I remember once when I was on Malarone for nausea and when I was in that medically induced coma, I remember taking a trip to the moon and back. Well, that was exciting. <laughs> I know, right? But I, I remember seeing my mom over there just like literally wigging out, freaking out because her her 16-year-old son is high as a kite taking a trip to the moon. Oh, that must have been, was that scary for you and for her? Like, uh, Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I mean, I don't know if, if you have kids, but can you imagine having a 16-year-old who's fighting for his life and a second cancer? I was told I had 14 days to live. Mm. You know, and, and you can't take that from a, a child. You can't jump in that person's body and, and fight for them. It's, cancer is not an individual disease, but it's, it's an individual fight. Yeah. And when they told you 14 days, 16 years old, what came up for you? That one, I do not remember because that's when they, they started, because no one's ever had Hodgkin's and Aspen sarcoma before. Together. So, exactly. Well, I had the first one. I was over the first one, and then I got a second primary cancer. So okay. no one's ever had Hodgkin's and Hodgkin's lymphoma and Aspen sarcoma. And the second time around with that second cancer, <clears throat> again, it was a second primary cancer. So that's when the doctors didn't know what to do because no one, there's no protocol for this. They didn't have any, anybody previously diagnosed with those two cancers. Mm-hmm. They just threw everything at me, you know, a bunch of chemical cocktails. And that's when they, they put me in the medically induced coma. So if I was in the hospital, say Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then I'd be released, you know, to go home, to have my body build back more, more blood cells, hemoglobin, stuff like that. Then I'd go back in. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, that would be one, one full cycle of my treatment. And every time I was in the hospital for that, that cycle, that's when they knocked me out. So I, I don't remember because in the process of one day, they found the tumor on an x-ray. They did a needle biopsy where they stuck it in through here and, and took out the aspirated part of the tumor. They put in a, a Hickman catheter, which is like a permanent IV. They took out a lymph node. They cracked open my ribs, performed a thoracotomy, removed the tumor, put it in a drainage tube, and started chemotherapy in less than 24 hours. That's how dire it was. So I don't remember past hearing my mom and my doctor talking in the hallway, just basically my mom cut right to the chase. Hey, is it cancer again? The doctor said, yes. That's all I remember. 
from so, then on, if it's a haze for the next 14 days. Yeah. So no emotion after that, because it's, everything's going so fast. You just don't remember. Exactly. That, and I, I do remember thinking, oh man, you, you gotta be kidding me. I gotta do this again. Yeah. And 16, you're going to get your license or you just got it, right? I, I was actually just going to get it. And as far as I know, I'm still the only person in Ohio. So I was born and raised in Ohio. I'm the only person in Ohio to have my driver's license picture taken with a hat on. Oh, wow. So they let you keep your, your, <laughs> oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> Were you able to keep that as a memento later on? I, I bet you it has to be somewhere. I need to go find it. Yeah. Yeah. That would be fun to look at. Right. Okay. So you're 16. You've, so I want to understand. So you were put in the coma every week. Every time I was in the hospital. So you would go in, go to sleep, wake up, go home for a little bit. Your body would recover and start all over again. Do it again. Oh my gosh. That happened because I went in, it was rough. It was the, excuse me, the chemotherapy for three months and then one month of radiation treatment where I had radiation Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Right. And then I went through 10 more months of chemo. So when I was in the hospital for the chemo, that's when they, they knocked me out. It was, they would give me something to just not remember. So I was actually in the moment I was awake. It was almost like, almost like I, as a 16, almost like I, I just, I drank too much and I blacked out. That's right. what it was like. So I was actually awake, but I, I don't remember it. Got it. Okay. Now, when you were awake and you were at home, do you remember what that felt like to you? I mean, were you scared? What emotions were happening during that time? I, I think I, I had ups and downs, right? But I think more than anything else, I was really focused on pushing forward. You know, the way I saw it was I had, I had two choices. I could fight for my life or give up and die. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to give up. And I knew that I, I had so many people who were, who were supporting me and wanted me to live. And obviously, I wanted to live, too. Right. So, yes, I was scared. But at the same time, I was motivated to, to continue forward. But I also learned to truly live in the moment and appreciate every day I was given. Okay. Can you explain that and how you do that, especially coming from your teenage self, right? How do you do that? I, I think... For me, it, it came easily just because the other option was to, to constantly ask myself the question, what if, you know, what if I don't survive? What if this happens? What if that happens? You know, I, I didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I learned to control my thoughts very, okay. very well. And one of them was through visualization. I would visualize, I would actually visualize myself inside my body fighting the cancer. You know, I was, I was in a microscopic spaceship where I would unload missiles that had chemotherapy laden with them. So I think that helped a lot. So whenever I was not feeling good, mm-hmm. I would picture myself in either inside my body or next year swimming back and forth in the pool, winning the 50 meter breaststroke. And when I had good days, I learned to focus on the here and now. So just over practice and, and being mindful of, of everything that was going around on around me, I learned and, and trained my brain to, hey, let's pay attention. And I mean, one, of, one of the best ways to do that is to just take a break and breathe. I mean, even like even right now, if, and I know you have headphones on, I was going to say, just take a deep breath and then relax and then listen and try to pick out five things that you hear.
Yeah. That, and a lot of people don't understand that's being mindful. So I, I heard I'm in Puerto Rico right now, which is why I usually live in Colorado, but we're turning my wife's house into an Airbnb. So I heard a rooster outside. I had her dog outside, the AC here, the fan up here, and my wife in the kitchen. Nice. So that's happening right now. And that trains your brain to focus on the here and now, as opposed to, okay, what am I going to be doing after this? Where are we going to go? What do we, no, just stop wherever you are, just stop and listen, you know, and then eventually you can add in more senses. You know, what do you smell? Pick out four or five things that you smell. Mm-hmm. So it really helps to focus your brain. I just do it all the time. It's over and over again. It becomes a habit. Now, did you figure that out on your own or did someone t- help <laughs> teach you that? You did. I, I figured it out. And I, I think I did it because when I was when I was first training and climbing and I went up Mount Everest, when I was going across those ladders, there are ladders that, are, that span across crevasses. Mm-hmm. And if you literally take one step to the right or left by six inches, you're going to fall and plummet to your death. So I focused on not where am I going to go to, to camp one? No, I, I had to focus on where each step was going. This step, then the next step, then the next step, then the next step. So I think that really helped as well. But also backing way up to the cancers, you know, I, I really had to do that because if I, if I like I said, if, if I thought about the future, then I would give my mind permission to constantly come up with whatever crazy cockamamie idea it could invent by asking myself what if well what if this what if that what if this what oh man i'm i'm overwhelmed so well what if that doesn't happen what if that doesn't happen what if that doesn't happen and then i started focusing on that and then slowly bringing it back more towards what i wanted as opposed to my brain going crazy and saying oh well there are so many things out there that could happen no because whether you're, you're focused on something positive or negative, that's what you're going to get. So when you first started having your, what if thoughts, your, what if thoughts went negative and absolutely you found like, if you will, you found yourself at the bottom of a crevice and how did you find the courage to climb out of that? I mean, it sounds like you had practice and it sounds like you knew you needed to, but do you remember any of the thoughts that went through your mind that said, okay, I'm having this bad thought. I want to feel better. So how am I going to do this? Do you understand where I'm going? Absolutely. And I think it was back in that, that, that shower scene that I mentioned when I was fighting for my life and, and I was 60 pounds of weight in a, a mess. And I think it was in that same moment when I, when I realized that I could um, either focus on not dying or focus on living. Mm. So I, I, I decided that again, I didn't want to focus on something negative. I wanted to focus on something positive. And I can only imagine how things would have turned out if I told myself over and over again, hey, don't die, don't die. Because it's, it's, it's kind of like the, um, the analogy of if you're driving and you all of a sudden you start sliding on ice, you're going to slide to where your attention is, where your eyes are. So if you're telling yourself, hey, you know, I, I don't, don't hit that telephone pole, and what's going to happen? You're going to smack right into it. So you need to guide yourself to somewhere else. And that's exactly what I did. As opposed to focusing on what I didn't want, I focused on what I wanted, not the avoidance of what I didn't want. Yeah, because you're right. You're inevitably, it's, you told the story of sliding on ice or focusing on a telephone pole. I think um, the story I know is whitewater rafting. If you focus on the rock, you will inevitably hit the rock. And if you focus on where you want the boat to go, 
then the boat will go that way. So absolutely. Yeah. That's a, that's a really important internal conversation. And so, and what I heard you say earlier is every time those thoughts came up, you would shift to what you did want. So maybe that thought came up. Did you just not listen to it? Did you acknowledge it and not listen? How did you do that? Well, I I think in the moment, it was definitely acknowledging and validating the fact that the thoughts were there. Okay. You know, because, because dying, I mean, it's, it's a fear and, and and it's still a fear. I don't want to die. I don't Mm. think anybody wants to die. You want to live forever. But the fact of the matter is eventually everyone does die. So I think what I did was I, I, I stopped myself and I realized, Hey, you know, these thoughts are coming in. Okay. They're just thoughts. I'm in no danger mm. right now in the moment. I'm in no danger. It's my brain convincing my body to produce the adrenaline to make me feel like I'm in danger, which induces that panic attack. Uh. So it's, it's the thought that initiates everything else. And when you realize that you're, you're not in physical harm, mm-hmm. it's your brain going crazy. However, those thoughts are real, okay? But those, those thoughts don't have to elicit an emotion. So that's when I, I sat there and I realized, okay, well, this is okay. I'll, I'll just, I'll let it go. Yeah, that's definitely something to think about, but it's, it's not happening right now. Again, being mindful, okay, here I am listening to this, listening to that, smelling this. You know, I can feel, feel things. Okay, everything's fine. Let it go. So I acknowledge it. Yes, it's, it's, it's a fact. It could potentially happen. I validate it. Well, I'm afraid of that because I don't want to die, but that's it. Just let it go. That's, um, that's an amazing tool to have at 16, I think. So from 16, you, you come out of your coma. And what inspires you? I mean, you've got an inspiring story already with learning just the thoughts, just the idea of how you deal with your, those negative thoughts, but what happens next? Well, I, I went to, I went to college. I turned into Belushi from Animal House. I had a wonderful time. I, I relived my teenage years and it was, it was fantastic. It was, it was a very expensive party. Yeah, I, a very I a expensive blast. party. Is that what party, you said? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I had a great time. And then uh, around the beginning of my junior year, I decided to get serious and I, I changed my major and I wanted to be a psycho-oncologist, a psychologist for cancer patients. Then I went to grad school. I started studying there. And that was the first time I actually stopped and, and took some time to focus on myself, looked in the mirror and thought to myself, who are you? So you, know, what do you, you went to college to be what? What was your first major? What, My first you, major was, was molecular biology. Okay. And, and later on, you realize, I don't want to do that. I want more of a um, psychology, oncology special. I want to specialize right. in I, that. Yeah, I think it was because if, if, you're going, if you're taking organic chemistry and immunology at the same time and you're partying too much, you're, you're probably not going to do so well. So <laughs> <laughs> I decided to switch to something else that I actually had passion for. And that was the mind. Yeah. I, you know, my uh, sister is a instructor in, excuse me, my sister is an instructional assistant in a high school and also finishing her degree. And one of the things that they, that she has learned over time is that switching degrees is actually important. And because 
a lot of kids go to high, go straight from high school to college and they think they need to know exactly what they're going to do. Clearly, you thought you did and then realized maybe this isn't, I'm not passionate about this. And so did you have to give yourself permission to make that change or was it more like a desperate, I'm miserably failing in this other area and I want to do something that I, I find fun? Yeah, that, that's probably the truth. If, if you want to know the truth, that's probably it. And I was taking a, uh, an intro to site class while I was also taking the organic chemistry and immunology. And I just, I really wasn't doing very well with those other, other two, but I found the psychology class I was taking incredibly interesting. So I, just, I decided to switch. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in this than I am the science aspect of it. Right. Yeah, psychology is fascinating to me as well. So that's fabulous. Okay, so you're at college, you switch gears. What's next? Next was grad school. And that's when I was actually, like I said, I, I took the, the first time ever, I, I stopped and I looked in the mirror and I thought to myself, okay, well, who are you? You know, yeah. what do you want? And this whole time from 16, 17 years old, where I finally got over and, and I was in remission, I was over the cancers, I realized, you know, this whole time I've been dragging around this bag of issues because of the cancer. Because I never stopped to, to focus on what it meant to me and how it impacted me. What were the, what was in that bag of issues for you? Oh, it was just the fact that I never really dealt with it. And I think maybe going back to your initial question of uh, my family talking about those emotions, we never did. So mm -hmm. I think that really, really lent itself to that self-exploration and, and that those, those deep questions that I had to ask myself. And it wasn't, it wasn't why me, it was more like, okay, well, now I realize and I have a better concept that I have the rest of my life ahead of me. Because mm -hmm. going through the treatments, you know, going through the treatments, it was living literally day by day by day. Right. And there were nights I went to bed not knowing if I was going to wake up the next morning. So all of a sudden now the doctor says, hey, Sean, you're, you're in remission. Go have a fantastic life. My yeah. friends are happy. My family's happy. Everyone's ecstatic except for me. I'm like, okay, well, the hell do I do now? You know? yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I guess that no would idea. be confusing. Yeah, that would be confusing. Um. Okay, I want to just go back two seconds to when you said something about going to sleep, not knowing if you were going to wake up. What was that like? Was it hard to fall asleep? Were you afraid to fall asleep? What was going on in, in those moments? Well, it, it, it was terrifying. I mean, every, every, not every night, but a majority of the nights, every time I closed my eyes, I didn't know if I was going to open them again. You know, there was, there was a moment when I remember in the middle of the night, all of a sudden I just, I woke up and I was hovering above my body. And I remember looking down at my body and I don't know if it was my brain. I don't know if it was the big guy upstairs, but I was just looking down at my body and it was a lifeless corpse. And then I was sitting there thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm not ready. And then I felt like this giant push on my back and I <gasps> woke up in the, in the bed, sat straight up. So that, that happened a couple of times. And then... It just the emotions of trying to stay awake as long as I possibly could. Yeah. You know, reading, doing something. But I, I eventually learned to, to train my brain to turn off. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm one of those people that, that, um, that other people hate because I can close my eyes and I can fall asleep in two minutes now. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I hate you. No. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. See? 
a lot of people are, a lot of people are jealous like i lay there for 15 20 minutes 30 minutes i look over my clock and it's an hour has gone by no me i'm just out yeah, I've learned it helps not to force myself or tell myself that I, I should be sleeping just to let it happen naturally. You know, either I'm going to fall asleep or I'm not. And if not, then I get up and go do something. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's weird because the harder you try to fall asleep, it, it doesn't work. It's like, go to sleep, go to sleep. No, it, it doesn't work that way. It, it makes it harder. It makes it exactly. worse. I think it just is horrible. Absolutely horrible. So, um, okay. So you go into psychology with, with the specialization and I'm thinking what I'm kind of, what I'm hearing a little bit is that that's probably when you started asking yourself and, and getting a better understanding of what had been happening inside of you. And that's when you asked yourself those hard questions. What were some of those hard questions? Well, I think the biggest question was why, you know, why did I go through cancer? And I, for the longest time, I still think even now it goes back to when I was sick, like, why me? But the fact of the matter is it was me. It is me. What am I going to do about it? Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to sit there and, and, and go crazy trying to figure out why, you know, why not? Yeah. So it, it happened. And then another one was, okay, well, what, what am I going to do with my life? How, how am I going to impact people? What's my purpose? Mm -hmm. Those mm -hmm. sorts of questions. And then I, I realized, well, I've, I've been given a gift with, I, I believe, the mind-body connection. And I wanted to really reach out to the world and help inspire people and, and help them, you know, in uncertain times, believe that it's a, it's a temporary state, not a permanent condition. Yeah, it really is. So you get your master's, right? I dropped out. You dropped out. Okay. I, so I was, I was working on my master's and my doctorate at the same time. I figured I could get my master's on the way to my doctorate, but I was also working three or four jobs at the same time. So that, that just, that just didn't function very well either. Then I realized, okay, well, let's, let's try to figure out a way to, to reach the cancer community. Mm -hmm. And I, the, I, I kept thinking bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it literally came up with Mount Everest as the highest platform on earth to scream hope. And that's, that's what my brother and I decided to do. So I decided, okay, well, I, after research, I found that no cancer survivor had ever climbed Mount Everest. And I thought, oh, okay, well, if someone's going to do it, why not me? And why not for the right reasons? Yeah. So, so your why not from earlier that went negative, why me to like that victim mentality became why not me? Exactly. And so- Absolutely. You did that research. I mean, you were already into sports and everything. I take it. Yep, so I was. I was exactly. I but I did. I didn't have a climbing background, but okay. I had a swimming background, running background, everything. Background. So, what did that take for you to prepare for your journey? And what emotional struggle or lessons did you learn along the way? So what did that take for you to prepare for your journey and what emotional struggle or lessons did you learn along the way? The first lesson I learned was because I was getting my master's at, in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. Uh, the first lesson I learned was not many mountaineers come from Florida. <laughs> so, <laughs> I actually, I packed up my stuff in our Honda Civic and we drove to Colorado. So that was, that was the first lesson we learned. 
And then the second one was literally that persistence or um, that's what I'm looking for. Um, doing something every single day is more important uh, than intensity. You know, persistence is more important. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, consistency, maybe? Consistency, exactly. Yeah, consistency is more important than intensity. Mm-hmm. Because if, if, if I'm going to climb Everest or if I'm going to run a marathon, if I'm going to do anything like that, it's not, uh, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and train for five days and, and go do it. And it's, mm-hmm. it's going to take some training. And it's just like anything in life. You just have to have a good pattern to have uh, develop good habits and stick to it. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is, yes, you can climb Mount Everest. And in order to get there, it's little steps over a long period of time along the path, I guess, is, is perhaps what I'll say. Absolutely. I mean, that's the only way to climb Everest, one step at a time. And I'm thinking doubt would pop in every once in a while on this journey from, you know, dropping out of school to actually climbing Everest. So can you tell us a little bit about that part of your journey? Well, the doubt was actually trying to find a place to live when we first moved to Colorado, because we lived out of the back of my Honda Civic and we camped for well, three months before we found, even found a place to live. So that was the biggest concern, I think. So you were um, homeless, you know, remember, essentially. Pretty much, yeah, we were, we were homeless. We were camping for a while. And I remember um, one night we got about three feet of snow and I rolled over to my brother in the town. I was like, Dude, we, we need to find a place to live. This is not gonna happen. <laughs> so that's when he, um, he and I both went to town in Estes Park, Colorado, and we started looking for different sponsors. And I knew we had to have sponsors to climb Everest anyhow, but we found a company called Evergreens on Fall River. And they were like a, a hotel, they're like a lodge rental company, and they helped us out. So okay, so you had no, I'm sorry about that. You had no <laughs> experience in climbing. And you're determined to climb Mount Everest. You've been homeless for three months and you go find a sponsor and you have no, there's nothing to show them. How, what did you say to them and how did you get them to believe in you and that you could do that? Well, I I told them my story and I told them that in eight months I was going to be leaving for Nepal. You just said, Hey, I'm leaving. Whether you, whether you're with me or not. Absolutely. Yeah. I was like, you know, we would love to have your support. Um, if not, we'll move on to someone else and we'll just keep banging on the doors until we get that support. So eventually we got them on as, as, as a friends now. Um, and then we had uh, Gore-Tex come on board, Cabela's come on board, um, Oslo Boots come on board. So after we got the first sponsor and the first support, it just everything fell in line. So would you say if there's an entrepreneur or someone who's got a dream out there that's listening right now, does it... it because I think what I'm hearing you say is maybe you don't have to have all the answers, but you've got a dream and you can get other p- people to believe in that dream. Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. And I also think before you see it come to fruition, you have to believe it is going to come to fruition. So if, if I went on this, this, I guess, life journey thinking, oh, I think I can do this, it never would have happened. As opposed to, I am doing this. Got it. Okay, so you're saying, it's not, I think I can do it. It's, I know I can do this. Right. And Yeah, little, yeah, little engine that could was wrong. It's not, I think I can. I think I can. I know I can. <laughs> <laughs> that 
that's fabulous. <laughs> so just that little shift in language, it sounds like. You have to. Again, going back to perspective, you know, you, you, you get what you're looking for and, and having the right perspective, even like in walking, if you're, if you're walking and you're telling yourself, don't trip, don't trip, you're going to fall on your face. Yeah. But if you tell yourself, stand tall, walk strong, it's the same concept, different way of looking at it. You know, and, so and kind once you, once... Sorry, I'm sorry, I keep no, talking over you. I, I, so kind of shift from the negative perspective to the positive perspective. So again, like we were, we were talking about earlier with, for me with the river and the white water rafting, it's go, don't go towards the rock, go towards the, the dream. Right. And, and we've been taught that for, we, and, and not by any parents' faults or, or because this, is, this isn't what they want for their children, but it's from such a young age. Hey, don't do that. Hey, don't get hurt. Hey, be careful. You know, we're implanting that negativity in our minds as opposed to, hey, have a good time, you know, fo focus on staying on the ladder or whatever it might be, whatever the positive twist to that could be. And I think that's what we're, we're taught at such a young age is so negative, even though people are thinking to themselves, well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to support you. I'm trying to I'm trying to protect you. I'm trying to do whatever. But you're, psychologically, it's from a negative standpoint. Hey, when you say don't do something, oh, you know, a, a perfect example is, you know, you, you go on a diet. You know, the instant you hear diet, you think it's restrictive. It's negative. But if you turn around and, and, and look at it from the aspect of, you know, nutrition, or I want to be healthy. You know, I, I, why, why, are you, why are you trying to lose weight? Oh, it's because, you know, I, I feel bad about myself. No, uh, a good example is why, why do people work out? Most of the time it's because, oh, I hate my body. No, you work out because you love your body. And what you're doing is good for you. You're not trying to get rid of something. You're trying to gain something. Right. That's a big deal. And I think when, when people start looking at it from a different angle, they realize it's more positive that way. Mm -hmm. It really is. It really is. Okay. So you've got your sponsors. You're preparing for, for this journey. What did that, what did your daily schedule look like? I mean. Training wise? Yeah. Oh, geez. I, I did something every day to train. Uh, it was, it was insane. I, I ended up working my way up to carrying a hundred pounds of rocks in my backpack up Long's Peak, which is 18 miles round trip, 14,256 feet. And I, I went up there in a bad day, you know, planning on bad days because I, I thought that if I went up Long's Peak on a bad day, a bad day on Long's Peak was probably better than a good day on Everest. And was it? No, it wasn't. Because <laughs> a good day on Everest is actually beautiful. <laughs> But you, I mean, I, I think that's really interesting that you chose the bad days to go up there because in my mind, also, I think I'm thinking I'm, we're thinking along the same lines, at least I'm going to challenge myself to the most difficult possible place I could challenge myself because then maybe when I get to the next step, it might just be a tad bit easier. Absolutely. I, I train so hard that I'm thankful when the event comes around because I can stop training. Mm -hmm. So I, I overtrain almost, so especially can, with, well, because that, that way I, I know I'm, I'm, 
overtrained for the actual event. And I, I, I look forward to it. I look forward to, to stopping training, I suppose. Is it, you think that maybe it becomes more enjoyable that way? The event? The actual, I think so, yeah. But I've also learned to, to like the, to, to love the process. Mm-hmm. I've, I've en- I, I enjoy training now. I enjoy, I don't want to say I enjoy pain, but I, I enjoy being uncomfortable because I know that's pushing me to become better. Let's talk about those uncomfortable feelings. Tell us a time when you were uncomfortable and how that inspires you during that journey to going up Mount Everest. Well, the, the first, wow, the first one that comes to my mind is I went out by myself, first mistake, climbing in the middle of a snowstorm to go set up a tent, maybe a few miles from my car. So I parked the car at the trailhead and I started following the trail um, because I, I could see where the trail was because there are little like blue diamonds on the trees. You know, you get to one, you can see the other one, and you see the other one. Um, and there was also a split in the woods where I could see that, okay, that's pretty obvious. So I get to a, an opening and I start setting up the tent. Again, another mistake is I didn't test the tent in the cold weather at home. So I'm trying to put this tent together and there are little bungee cords inside the tubes that you connect together to make the structure. It was so cold that those that bungee cord wasn't pulling. So when I put the tube together, I had this, this enormous bungee cord at the end. So the tubes wouldn't stay together. I couldn't set up the frame of the tent. I couldn't do anything. So then I thought, okay, well, I might be able to dig a snow cave. I might be able to just stay in my you know bivy, meaning putting something around the outside of a sleeping bag. And I thought to myself, okay, let's just get out of here. So at this point, it's dark. I turn around and try to find my way back. And because there's so much snow, I couldn't even see where I came in. Oh, no. So I'm, I'm completely lost in the middle of the dark. My, I had my headlamp on, couldn't see a thing, You know, followed my compass, it, heading back to where I thought I should go. And maybe about 30 minutes to an hour later, I thought I saw something reflecting in the woods. And it was actually my license plate reflecting back on my headlamp. So that's how I found my car because my car was that it was a Honda Civic, but it was black. Okay. So what were some of those emotions happening inside of you? Like I was, I was freaking out. Was, was your heart <laughs> pounding? Were you starting to sweat? Were you nauseous? What? Absolutely. All of that. So my heart started pounding. I started sweating, which is not good when you're in the cold weather, because then what happens is that the sweat gets to your clothes and then you start to freeze. Your hair starts freezing, hair starts freezing. Everything just starts freezing over. So then I I thought, okay, I could feel a drip coming down. Okay, slow down, (laughs) breathe. The worst thing that's going to happen. And this is where my brain went. The worst thing that can possibly happen. I bring out my, my sleeping pad. I put my, my, my sleeping bag on top of that and I sleep out in the cold exposed without a tent. You know, that's the worst thing that, that could happen. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, maybe a bear comes in and chews my face. I don't know, but I didn't, I tried not going down that, that path, but I, 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 again, being mindful, like, okay, stop. What am I doing right now? I'm letting my emotions take control of me. I need to be in control because if, whenever anything like that happens, uh, you, you cannot lose control because you can't be emotional and you can't be logical at the same time. It's like, okay, logic kick in. Where do I need to go? This is what I need to do. The end goal is right there. How do I get there? How do I find my way? So did you first label the emotion and say, okay, I'm feeling anxious. And then that helped you get into your logic mind. Or how did you go from that panic to logic and calmness? 
I, I think I just stopped. I was like, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> What's going on here? You know, you know how you, you talk to yourself. You got those crazy voices in there. Whoa, 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 what's going on? I don't know. What's going on? You tell me. You know, going back and forth. <laughs> like, okay, well, you're sweating. Okay, I know. That's not good. What do we need to do? I need to get rid of this, this other voice in my head so I'm back in control. And I, I said, okay, look, I know you're there to help support me in certain situations, fight or flight, but I need you to just be quiet for a second. And then I focused again where I needed to go. So I think it was that internal dialogue that I really started paying attention to. Sounds like you've got a really neat inner voice to me. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we learned to support each other. All these, all these voices in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I talk to myself, too, all the time. And I, you know, when those negative thoughts come in, sometimes I think of the, the whitewater rafting. Other times I think of questions like, am I sure? Am I 100% sure that's true? Right. I don't know. We'll see. You know, and then I start looking around for things that I do know, kind of like you're you're breathing, take that breath. What do you know is happening around you right now? Name five things. It's weird that it's that fast that I could, that yeah. the human mind can shift into that. So I really do want to get into climbing Everest. So you did all this training. I know we're going to skip to the climb. What was that like getting to base camp and that entire process and what were the emotions behind that? Well, the, the process of getting to base camp was actually, it took two weeks to hike in. Okay. Um, and because base camp was at 17,600 feet. And that, that was higher than anything I'd ever climbed before getting to, to Nepal. So I remember when I was hiking up towards this last little village called Gorek Shep, and it's a pretty steep section. And I, I had read that, you know, people who are acclimatized, they have more red blood cells you know, more hemoglobin because there's less air. Mm -hmm. And to adapt for that, the body actually produces more. So that's why you need to spend time and altitude before you head on up. So I remember I was huffing and puffing. I'm 27 at the time, thinking I'm in the best shape of my life. And I'm really struggling getting up this hill. You know, so I'm carrying a backpack and this, at the time, my brain probably exaggerated. She looked like she was 90, like a 90 year old lady just right by me. I was like, my God, I'm never gonna make it. But I also realized that she's, you know, she was, she lived in Nepal. She lived at altitude probably her entire life. And for her, it wasn't an issue. Right. And then when we got to uh, to Everest Base Camp, then you're just looking up at the mountain. You can't even see the summit until you get to uh, Camp 3, just just below Camp 3. So there are four camps from the uh, the south side, the Nepalese side. Base Camp and then four camps after that. Okay. And uh, what a lot of people don't understand is, it, I, I arrived at base camp April 8th. I summited May 16th. That's how long it takes to climb the mountain. So about, roughly a month and a half, you know, just over a month. And the reason is because, you, like I said, the higher you go, the less atmospheric pressure there is in your body. So your body has to readjust and, and build more red blood cells. So we went from base camp to basically camp one. And we would go up with a full backpack. We would come down with an empty pack. And then we would do just do shuttle runs back and forth, up and down, up and down, up and down day after day. And then we would move from, you know, camp one to camp two, shuttle things up to camp two, shuttle things up to camp three. And then when we were ready to go for the summit push from camp four, um, from 26,000 feet, we left, I want to say at 10 PM and I summited at 9:32 in the, the next morning. Oh, wow. So almost 12 hours of climbing. So, and you're not taking 
really any breaks when you're climbing the mountain. It's, it's very, very slow because it, it almost seems like every step is a break, literally, you know, half, half a step, you know, and I, I, I wear a size 12, 13 boots. So one foot here and then one foot, just half, you know, half a step there, half a step, but it's literally taking half a step and then just breathing 10, 15 times then taking another half step and then breathing 10 or 15 times because you can't pull in enough oxygen to sustain that, uh, the strain that your muscles are going through. So you're really having to think about breathing. Absolutely. Just literally in and out. And, and with, because of fact, I only have one functioning lung, but I, I taught myself how to breathe years ago and it's not through my upper chest. It's through my, my diaphragm and utilizing all of my capacity. Right. So when you, but when you did your quick breaths right there, it seemed like those were kind of shallow. I mean, I'm assuming it's because you're not on Everest right now, but when you're on <laughs> Everest, I'm assuming that that has to be a very deep and is it deep and fast or deep and slow? Deep and fast. So it's, it's weird. A lot of people say breathing on Everest is like breathing through a straw, but breathing through a straw is really difficult. You know, that, I don't know where that came from, but breathing up there, because the air is so thin, it comes in and out of your lungs so quickly and so easily, you know, and, and believe it or not, because of that, um, a lot of people develop what's called a kumbu cough, and the kumbu is a section, the area in, in the just south of Nepal, and because you can, you can cough so forcefully up there, you don't have that pressure holding it back, people crack their ribs coughing. Oh, wow. Okay. That would be a little scary. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I don't think I would want to cough up there though, because that would no. I would be afraid I'm gonna break a rib. Yeah, but it, but if you develop a kumbu cough and you're constantly coughing over and over and over again, then that's I mean you could potentially break a rib. Okay, so you're on Everest. You're having to take these deep breaths. It's slow going. It sounds like. And Very. are you? I mean. You left at 10 something and didn't summit until almost 12 hours later, it sounds like. And throughout that process, what were your emotions? Did you have to have a lot of those conversations, those mental conversations with yourself throughout that journey? So going back to being positive and negative, I never once told myself, don't stop, because I think that's what it, that's exactly what I would do. So I actually developed a mantra Every single step, I thought to myself, the higher I go, the stronger I get. The higher I go, the stronger I get. And I did that literally for 12 hours. And eventually my brain believed it. Just the higher I go, the stronger I get. Because I wanted to focus on where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to focus on falling to the right. I didn't want to focus on tumbling down the mountain. I wanted to focus on where I wanted to go. The higher I go, the stronger I get. The higher I go, the stronger I get. It's a great mantra, I think, even if you're not climbing Mount Everest. <laughs> Maybe yeah. the Everest in your own personal life, right? Whatever your Everest Absolutely. is. <laughs> so what was it like getting to the top? That was kind of like taking every emotion I've ever had and exploding it all at once. So initially I was, I was elated that I made it up there. I was super happy. And then all of a sudden I was super depressed because I had to, I had to go back down and then super happy that I made it up there and then super scared that I had to go back down. You know, it was, it was all over the place. But one of the things that, that kept me going was I had a flag that was about this big that had names of people touched by cancer. 
And it was on a silk flag and I had it in my chest pocket close to my heart as a constant reminder of my goals. And I, when I got to the top, I wrapped that around it. So that's what kept me going as well. And I was just, I, I wept like a, a baby, called my brother on, my, on the radio because he was down at base camp. And I said, you know, I, I, I made it. You know, he's in tears, I'm in tears. He calls mom and dad on the satellite phone. They're in South Carolina. So it was probably, you know, 11, 12, maybe midnight their, their time. And he's calling on the, on the phone and says, at this moment in time, you have a son who's standing on top of the world. That's amazing. <laughs> Were they, did they cry too? Oh, I was crying. He was crying. Mom and dad, everybody was in tears. Oh, now, could you, because you were on the radio, could you hear the phone call with mom and dad? Or No, no, just got to hear about it. (laughs) It's not a bad thing. So I like how you described all of, that it was all of the emotions, the happy, the sad, the scared, the joyous, because I think sometimes that we that things get accomplished at least for me in my life and then it's like now what and there's this fear of what happens next so tell me what your thoughts and those emotions were when you were coming down the hill or down the mountain I should say not the hill <laughs> right I, I think coming down I was I was on literally on cloud nine I was just super super happy with for everything I just accomplished but I was also, I was excited to get home and take a shower, you know, because <laughs> a month and a half on the mountain and it was just no showers, just hot water and buckets. So my goal was, okay, you know what? I, I did it. Let's, let's get out of here. Let's get back to Kathmandu and let's get a beer and celebrate. Okay. So, you know, you just finished climbing Mount Everest. You get down, you've been on this high, you had this goal. Did you have the, those moments where it's like, oh, gosh darn it, I completed that, now what? I, I did, and, and even, even now sometimes, like, you know, I, I look at it and I, I climbed the, the pinnacle of the mountaineering industry, the highest mountain in the world, what's next? Mm-hmm. But I, I also realized that it's, it's not about the destination a lot of times, it's about the journey, it's about the, the process. You know, it's about enjoying what we have, not looking at what we don't. So even though I, I climbed Everest and you know the highest mountain every continent, I take a group up Kilimanjaro every year. People always say, oh, "I'm going to conquer that mountain." You don't conquer the mountain; you conquer yourself. And I think I learned a lot about myself on the mountains. And I also realized that I, I didn't find the answers on top of a mountain. They've always been looking at myself in the mirror. Wow, that's really poignant to realize that the answers are in front of me right now versus a task that I need yeah, to Yeah, they're not out there somewhere. So knowing this, was it easier to move on to your next steps to, because you're at this point, you know, it's your journey. So now it doesn't maybe really matter what it is you're going to do because the journey is what you're looking forward to, or how does that work? I think I, I always have goals and I always have those endpoints I want to reach, but I've learned to really appreciate the process. So um, I'm working on the Summit Challenge, which is an online series of, of intentional challenges to help people elevate their lives to where they want to go. And I'm, I'm working on the emails and the videos and I'm, I'm getting a kick out of it. You know, it's, it's fun creating something mm-hmm. as opposed to just wanting to, to get to the end. You know, that, that's, that's not it. 
And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's really helped me understand what my personal core values are and utilizing those personal core values, what means most to me to continue doing what I'm doing. And that's actually one of the, the first challenges. I, I give people a, a core values assessment and they have to figure out what their personal, personal core values are. That's step one. Yeah, to, it's almost like you have to figure out who you are and what you stand for. Absolutely, because there are so many people in the world who are on autopilot. They need to take a step back and figure out what they want, not what social media wants them to want. You know, figure out who you are. You're a unique individual out of what, 8 billion people on the planet? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can look up to somebody else, but don't emulate them. Be your well, own person. Cause, yeah, because you're never going to be them anyway. Exactly. And as soon as you start chasing goals that other people have, you lose who you are. Chase your own goals. Go after what you want, not what somebody else wants for you. For sure. For sure. Okay. So three things that you want the audience to know about finding hope in the midst of a struggle. I think I mentioned it before that it's, it's a temporary condition, not a permanent state. You know, that's, that's probably the biggest one. Realize that this, this too shall pass and it, it will get better. Um, and don't think, oh, it, 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 it's not going to get any worse and because that's still negative. It will get better. So focus on that. And I think that that's kind of a, a good segue into the next one. Focus on what you want, not the avoidance of what you don't want. So if you want things to get better, don't think, oh, it can't get any worse. No, because it probably can. You know, focus on how, how it can get better. And then the third one, if anybody wants a, a free core values assessment, Go to the summitchallenge.com or shoot me an email, sean at, uh, at cancerclimber.org.org. And I, I have no problem sending it because I, I think people need to understand what motivates them at the core level. So understand who you are. Yeah. I am really grateful that I got to have this conversation with you today, Sean. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm grateful for your time as well. You know, I, I love connecting with people. Everybody has a story, right? Everybody. You can learn something from everyone on the planet. If you want to share your relatively damaged story of struggle and how you found hope, visit us at damagedparents.com and complete the contact form. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Relatively Damaged by Damaged Parents. We really enjoyed talking to Sean about how he learned to have conversations with himself and choose which voice he wanted to listen to. We especially liked when he taught us how to take a breath. To unite with other damaged people, connect with us on TikTok. Look for Damaged Parents. This podcast was sponsored in part by Arches Audio. We'll be here next week, still relatively damaged. See you then.